I'd like to welcome you to the ministry of McCormick's Creek Church. We certainly hope that you will enjoy this selection. The fourth chapter, verses 18 through 22, and Mark 3, 14 through 19. Matthew 4, 18 says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon, called Peter, Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. Mark three fourteen through 19, And he ordained twelve that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach and have power to heal sickness and to cast out devils. And Simon, he surnamed Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, and he surnamed them Bonerges, which is the sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him, and they went into a house. You may be seated in Jesus' name. There is no shortage of so-called spiritual leaders in our world today and throughout history. There have been no shortage whatsoever. Holy men who were revered and acclaimed. But there is no religion that puts as much value on the founder and the leader of that religion as does Christianity. Jesus Christ is God. And he is not only to be followed, but he is to be worshipped. And adherence to Christianity is not just adopting a philosophy, but it is relating intimately to a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Developing a relationship with Jesus, communicating with Jesus, obeying Jesus, and fellowshipping with Jesus, all all of these are key elements in the Christian faith. Jesus displayed these principles when he chose 12 men to be his disciples. They were not committee members or members of some kind of exclusive club. They were disciples, simple disciples. They lived with Jesus on a daily basis. They were a perpetual audience to his teaching and compassionate acts of kindness. They witnessed these things. Their lives were put on hold as they traveled with Jesus and subjected themselves to his constant monitoring and evaluation. He answered their questions. He showed them how to live their lives in a new way. And he proclaimed the kingdom of God. Now just... I've said a whole lot, several mouthfuls right there, but let's, let's, let's take this down to where we live. Because as apostolic believers, Pentecostal believers, we are to commit ourselves to discipleship. This requires not just a commitment to a church doctrine or a philosophy of life, but it is a committed relationship with Jesus, and that's where we have our problems. It's a committed relationship. It's not just a matter of following a doctrine that is preached or principles that are preached. 
We need to know those principles. We need to know those doctrines. But when we are committed to Jesus Christ, it will be absolutely no problem to follow those doctrines and principles. That's the difference. That's what makes the, the difference between someone who sits on a pew and a soul winner. That's what makes a difference in somebody who is willing to, to give it all to, be a, to, to get out there to reach one person and the person who just, you know, is kind of haphazardly about how he relates to, to anybody. That's the difference. The difference all is in the relationship and the commitment to Jesus Christ. You know, the world is full of all kinds of, uh, just anything that you want, you know. And, and, and within the nature of mankind, we have a tendency to want to always find something new in the world, and especially if you're young. You know, the world has so much to offer, so much worldliness out there, so much to do. Well, I can't commit to being a teacher. I can't commit to this because I know I'm not living right. Well, then why don't you decide to live right? Just why don't you decide to live right? You know, one thing I learned a long time ago, when I made a commitment to God, I made it for keeps. And that does not mean I haven't failed. But every time I have fallen, I made a decision to get up again and to keep on going because I was going to get my commitment just a little closer. You know, just like he did with his first disciples nearly 2,000 years ago, the Lord continues today to call people to his service. And that service is for the kingdom of God. And as he reached down into the everyday lives of 12 rather ordinary men from ancient Israel and summoned them to follow him unconditionally, his calling still seeks out those who are willing to lay down their worldly pursuits, their ambitions, and focus on kingdom matters. You know, let, 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 me, let me give you one other thing. Being in the kingdom of God, does not mean that you cannot have fun. Being in the kingdom of God is some of the most joyous things I've ever done within that kingdom. There is a different way that you relate to people. There's a different way that you can enjoy the presence of God. There's a joy within that that goes so far and beyond anything that you could ever have when you lived in the world. When you put the kingdom first, you can have joy beyond measure. You can have fun in doing the things of God. You can enjoy being with people. Why? Because you've got all the encumbrances of the world off of you because you no longer desire the things of the world. It just loosens you. It gives you a rejoicing that goes beyond anything you could ever imagine. Get off the melancholy and get on the high of Jesus Christ. Get off the lows and get up to where Jesus wants you to be. Give Him a hand clap if you understand what I'm saying. Now we're going to look here for just a little while at the, at the nature and, and understanding the calling of the original 12 apostles will help us to, to, to understand the nature of God's calling in our lives. And as we, we're going to see, the Lord is searching for people. Those who are open to whatever assignments He desires for them to carry out. He expects nothing less than full surrender to His plans and purposes. Now, in the words of David Garland, these, uh, this is one of the commentators in uh, the book of Matthew, a book called The Literary and Theological Commentary on the First Gospel. He says this, he said, Responding to God's call requires a total reordering of priorities in life and unreserved commitment. Unreserved commitment. You stop and think about that for a moment. If you go out and you decide, 
you're going to make a million dollars, which is nothing. Let's make it better than that. One million dollars used to be when I was young is about five million now. So you're going to make five million dollars. You can do that still today if you completely give yourself over to what you're doing. You can still do it. If you find a way to do this and you give yourself totally to that, and there's a lot of people that have done exactly what I'm telling you. They go out, they give themselves to it, they have nothing else on their mind, they live it, they breathe it, they eat it day and night, they work 24 hours a day, they can get there. But what do they have? They have $5 million and they spend the rest of their life trying to protect it. In this case, if you give yourself completely, commit yourself to serving God and to the ministry of the kingdom of God, you can arrive there too, and I don't care who you are. I don't care how much you don't think you know. I don't care how ignorant you may think you are. You can give yourself to the Word of God and commit yourself to prayer and fasting, and you can get there and you can build the kingdom of God. You can have something so strong and so powerful that there is nothing. They could offer you money. They can offer you prestige. But nothing, nothing ever, ever gets to the point of what you have when you're in the kingdom doing the will of God. That is the greatest joy that you will ever find. It's the greatest fulfillment that you will ever find. And you can do that if you commit to it. Now nah, you're not hearing me. Nobody's hearing me this morning. We're gonna we're just going we're gonna be in our study by looking at the period of time that's following the baptism of Jesus, uh, which signaled the conclusion of John the Baptist's ministry. John captured the essence of sold out form of discipleship ship intent on denying self and glorying the Lord when he proclaimed, He must increase, but I must decrease in John three thirty. From this point in the gospel narrative, Jesus' followers laid down their personal agendas and they began to follow after Jesus. Now, to, to, to ensure that we come to grips with the urgency and the, and the all-encompassing character of the disciples' calling, you have to consider these gospel accounts in some detail. I want you, uh, and again, we have to look at this in giving a, to the allure of the world today. And that constant appeal to compromise the Lord's values and to tone down our commitment to his mission, it's imperative that we comprehend the true nature of what Jesus is calling to his first disciples. And it's, it's interesting because it is so simple. Everybody makes serving God, committing to God, so hard. They go around looking for little edges here and... What's God trying to say to me there? What's God trying to do for me there? Am I miss the will of God? My children are all out doing stupid things. Did I miss the will of God? It's too late to do anything about it now. Forget it. Just pray and hope and believe God. That's what you do. But what do you do? You serve God. You love God. You commit to God. You do the simple things that God has called all of us to do. And that is to be a saint of God first. Get the saint right. Get the saint right, and the rest of it will follow. I'm going to have to title me a message, Get the Saint Right. I thought I'd preach a message. I've been working on a message about Ghostbusters. Yeah, I have. Ghostbusters. Y'all remember that? Big marshmallow man. I'm going to change it to Ghost Chasers. Because that's what we need to be doing, is we need to be chasing after the Holy Ghost. 
Uh-huh. We need to be following after the Holy Ghost. I'm not worried about a marshmallow man that toast up and go, I wouldn't mind eating some of that. That was some good-looking stuff and that was when they blew him up. Now, yeah, you're talking. <sighs> you know, we need to be saints. We need to be saints and not worry about the rest of it. I've seen so many people and they've got this worried look on their face. You can see them in the congregation. I'm just not getting it. I'm just not getting it. Just try to enjoy where you are. Did you ever, let me tell you, did you ever just get to the point where you do things right on Monday? You get all the way from Monday morning to Monday night. You've not messed up, not had a bad thought. Not chewed out your, your 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 sons, not chewed out your grandkids, not chewed out Jerica. You know, not done any of that. And at the end of the day, you're ready to go to bed. Then you need to rejoice that you've had a good day. You know, you start accumulating the rejoicing. You start accumulating. Well, it goes on Tuesday, and you mess up in every one of the areas I just talked about. Well, you still had Monday. And you go back and you think about the good things that you had on Monday. And, and you remember that you did it once. Guess what? I can do it again. And, and, and you know, that's how we do. We, we, we do that. And before long, we find ourselves in a position to where we're not constantly focusing on just me being right with God all the time. Instead, I can focus on the kingdom of God because I think I've got me right. You see what I'm saying? I've got me right because we just sit around and we worry about not serving God correctly. And we never do anything because we never feel worthy to do anything. So this is, this is you know, we need to understand the call of God. You know, we're going to focus on two sets of brothers whom he found plying their fishing trade at the Sea of Galilee. This, this episode is surely representative of the similar callings to serve the Lord. And, and from such meager, inauspicious beginnings, these fishermen would join others, the summoned by the Master's call. And together, the Bible says in Acts 17, 6, that they would turn the world upside down. These were two sets of brothers that the only thing they understood was fishing. And fishing the way they did in Galilee. So this account of these Galilean fishermen calls, calling is a narrated, or is narrated rather, in Matthew 4 and Mark 3, with additional information provided by Luke 5. Now the account shares many fascinating features with certainly Old Testament, <laughs> with certain rather Old Testament calling narratives, including the call of Elisha by Elijah in 1 Kings 19. So you can look at this, because the calling was brief. Yeah, <laughs> You know, I've heard people, uh, forgive me, I, I just, you know, I, I've heard people, now I'm not apologizing, brother, for, for the Bible. I'm apologizing for, because I'm, I'm getting ready to nail some people, so there's a difference, all right? Okay. He gets me, I say, forgive me for saying something. So you don't have to apologize for the Scripture. I'm not apologizing for the Scripture. But I've heard people, I've heard people, you know, they, they just, they talk about when God called me to salvation. You know, they went through months of this happening and that happening. And that, that, I, I'm not against it. That's nice. It's really nice that God did that for you. Months. Honestly, when God called me, it didn't work like that. It was very similar to this. I mean, you stop and think about it. you got these two sets of fishermen. Jesus walks by and he sees, he sees Keith. He's down there, he's down there filleting a kingfish. You know, he just caught it. He was on my boat, 
he chartered me, and I took him out. He, he, he caught a nice kingfish. For you don't know what kingfish is, saltwater fish. And he's coming back, and Jesus walks by, and he looks at him, and he doesn't start it then and give some kind of, you know, mystical thing. You know, I say, if you will look my way, follow me until you can't see me any longer. Tomorrow something good will happen to you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's what we want, though, isn't it? We want that kind of... Instead, he looks at him and says, follow me. You know what is so great about this is that in that time period, it was up to the student to pick the rabbi. There was a lot of rabbis that was teaching. So they found the best one, one that had the, you know, the, the best credentials. And they would follow that, that man. But in this case, Jesus did the choosing. They didn't choose Jesus. He chose them. And his call was so, follow me. And he, he not only follow me, but he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. That was a strange thing. Now, do you think they really understood that? But that was the extent of it. That was the extent of the calling. His appeal left no need for clarification, no room for negotiation. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And again, you know, they, they, they normally, it was them that picked out the teacher, but not in this case. Jesus' imperative to those men that day was not to enroll in a particular rabbinical school or to study a certain brand of Jewish philosophy, but to follow him. He was not interested in lukewarm commitments or entertaining objections or excuses, as some would be follow other followers did later. We see in Matthew, the 8th chapter. And unlike Elisha, Elisha's calling episode in 1 Kings 19.20, the urgency of the kingdom work apparently did not permit even the expected farewells or finishing up of important family matters. It wasn't a matter. No, you can't do what Elisha did. Elisha wanted to go kiss his daddy goodbye, and, and, and then he would follow Elijah. But that was not the case in the gospel. The gospel is imperative now. I know everybody, you know, I'm, I am what I am, and that's all that I'll ever be. And, and, and I see good in, in anything that you, can, that you can do to make yourself better. But that's, that, that, that imperative right there has always been a guiding force in my life. When God called me to the ministry, I was already teaching Bible studies. You see, to me, the most important thing, I understood enough of the Scripture that I was going to teach the Scripture, and if I didn't know what I was talking about, I'd ask somebody who was smarter than I was. But the important thing was to follow Jesus right then. The important thing was to get there to be a disciple. You don't learn to be a disciple. You can't go to four years of Bible school and become a disciple. You have to follow Jesus. You have to learn about things from Jesus. You have to learn this through prayer. You have to learn this by following Him and staying close. You have to do it through anointed preaching and teaching from a platform. You have to, you have to allow that to just flow inside of you. And yes, I know Bible school can be good. I'm not, please don't understand. I'm not knocking that. But how many years is wasted? You know, so many people do so much within those years and they lose that zeal. You know, I get filled with the Holy Ghost. I got a zeal to win people to God. And then they go and get educated and they get, had too much seniority to use it. 
Well, that's good preaching. Thank you, Lord. Send this to all the Bible schools. <laughs> Jesus' call was personal. He did not set up a recruiting table. Get that? He didn't do this at an important road junction in Galilee and wait for candidates to come and sign up. His followers were not volunteering to join a military unit. They were not issued a standard uniform, weapon, or ID numbers. Rather, Jesus sought out particular individuals for a special task, and he knew them all by name. He knew them by name. You get that? When Jesus Christ called you to salvation, he already knew you by name. When you came down to this altar, Jesus already knew that that's what you were going to do. Jesus knew your name. He knew your background. He knew what you needed to repent of, and he knows where you're going. You know, this is not something. You know, he, he sought out particular individuals for a special task, and he knew them all, every one of them. In one case, Jesus even gave his disciples a new and fitting nickname in John 1.42. He related to them by identifying with their business. He was raised not far from the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus likely would have been acquainted with some of the ways of ancient fishing. At least once Jesus evidently engaged in fishing himself in, in John 2, 21, 9. And Jesus chose to meet with these fishing uh, partners in their environment, on their turf. He met them where they were by showing up at their place of employment. He does that for us. I guarantee you that there are people here right now that can tell me that during the course of their day of working, when Jesus started dealing with them about being saved, that he showed up where you were working. Whether it would be in a truck cab or whether it be on a line somewhere, he showed up there and began to deal with you. That's the way he does things. That is exactly how he operates. Jesus' command was direct and simple. He said, follow me. There was no orientations, no consultations, there was no seminars they were expected to attend. There was no instruction manuals, no briefings, there was no boot camps. It, it, you know, it, it, to, to help prepare them for the rigors of the road, there was none of that. Instead, they would receive on-job training. And their straightforward task was simply to follow Jesus wherever he went. That was what they were to do, to follow him wherever he went, to learn of him. He said, learn of me. He said, because I'm meek and lowly, you're going to find rest for your soul. He said, if you'll learn of me, learn of this. I'm in control. That's what meek means. He said, I'm in control. Jesus is in control, and that's what he expects out of us, to be in control. Because when you're in control, you give him control. When you're out of control, he can't control. So that's, that's what he do. The submission. Now, they had to submit to this. One of the keys to properly responding to Jesus' calling was submission. And to follow Jesus required complete and total obedience. And if we're to heed Jesus' call, it will take no less than our full surrender. And, 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 and that's it's just that simple. It's no less. So if we're to heed it, we're going to have to. There we go. I knew we got better. Um, now, now we sound strange. What was that? That's better. Don't ever worry about turning me up too loud because I know how to lower this. All right. So if we're to heed the call, we're going to take no less than full surrender in, in, you know, to his will and direction. Francis Maloney was uh, observing this thing. Again, he's the Gospel of Mark, a commentary. He said this. He said, there's no place for conditioned response 
it will cost no less than everything. In other words, you can't put conditions on your response to Jesus. Okay, Jesus, I'm going to respond to you if. You know, this, this, and this. Now, I can give you this much, but I can't give you any more than that. He doesn't want that. And he won't respond to that. You have to give him everything that you are. Now, I want you to follow. And I, you know, before you get too bent out of shape, just, just stay with me for a while. Jesus was an itinerant, itinerant preacher who had purposely left home to begin his ministry. At times, he had no certain place even to lay his head, according to Matthew 8.20. Now, his followers would be expected to do no less. Although the disciples' uh, ties with family and vocation were naturally strong, such bonds of loyalty could not stand in the way of their commitment to his cause. One potential follower who requested that he first be permitted to bid his family back home farewell was told by Jesus, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back was fit for the kingdom of God in Luke 9. Now that is a clear reference to the Old Testament prophet Elisha who asked Elijah if he could return from plowing in the field to kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow thee. Because service to the kingdom under the new covenant could not wait. This was not something that could wait. Now, I know this has been going on for 2,000 years, but if Jesus felt that way 2,000 years ago, how does he feel today? If he felt that there was no time, does he still feel that there is not that much time left? And you know good and well that's how he feels. That's why people have to, that are called to follow him need to act on following him. Could not wait. Grant Osborne in the Zondervan... Uh, commentary on Matthew said the Lord calls us to radical discipleship for Jesus says absolute priority over occupation and family while God does not expect all Christians to abandon their homes family jobs and responsibilities as the apostles did to follow him we must be willing if if need be to sever relationships and affairs in this world that would hinder us from fully following his lead God also expects us to use godly wisdom reason and principles in all of our decisions God God is not telling you you have to sell your home, do all of these things. He is, wants a willingness in our hearts to do those things. That's the key element in following God. It's the willingness to get rid of everything you have if the need comes there. It's in the mind and in the heart. God knows that. I've seen people who have done stupid things. Now, I'm going to go out to the mission fields, go out and sell. And they weren't really ready for that. They had not been discipled. That wasn't their calling. I would like for somebody in this congregation to explain one thing to me. I, if you can do this, I'll probably have all my questions answered in the kingdom of God. If you can answer this. Why is it? Why is it that people have to go to mission fields or have to go pastor another church to be effective when they can't be effective in the church they started in? How can you go overseas and win a soul if you can't win a soul in your home church? Would someone explain that to me? Why is that? I just feel a call to go to Peru. I'm going to I'm going to Peru and I'm going to be a missionary to the Aztecs. And yet you've sat around, you've wept, you've cried, there's been visitors that sat beside you, and you never one time laid a hand on them and prayed with them or never took them to the altar. And the, and, the, and the guy next to you where you were working has asked you questions, but you always just put him off. 
but you're going to go to Peru, and, well, I'm called to the Aztecs. You know, let, let's just be honest. We're called to the world. All of us are. All of us are. That's one of the things that Jesus made very clear. His calling, when, when he calls his disciples, it went from the Israelis to the world, the Gentiles. If you can't win one person here, you're not going to go overseas and win anybody. Yeah, there you go. you got some good preaching right there. <laughs> Peter confessed that the disciples, they had left all and had followed thee. According to Jesus, what had they forsaken in the process? Now, this is the question. He said, what have you, what have you forsaken? He goes on, he says, house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels, Mark ten twenty eight. That's radical discipleship. They were willing to do this. You know, we need to be willing to do the same thing. But be sure that you understand what you're getting into. There's a lot of people that think somehow that they can just go. And there was, I've heard stories before my time uh, here at the church where there's been, there have been people who, you know, they, they, <laughs> I remember, I, I think it was Brother Balt who told me the story about a couple, uh, I think I vaguely remember them when I first got in, but uh, that, you know, they, they believed that, that they didn't have to work. God's going to take care of them, so they didn't have to work. You know, they left out a big portion of the Bible. Well, I wouldn't have to worry about that. We're just going to fast and pray, not going to work. Well, guess what? They backslid in a few short months because that just doesn't work. You know, let's be, let's be obedient to all the Scripture. Man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to get, cloister yourself away. You might as well go to a cloistered convent somewhere and live like a nun. You know, I don't want any of the world to touch me. I don't like the world to touch me either, but guess what? The Holy Ghost is the barrier I have. I don't have to have walls up around me to keep me from being touched by the world. I've got the Spirit of God inside of me to keep me from being touched by the world. Do you understand what I'm saying? Give the Lord a hand clap of adoration and praise. When Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, and John at the Sea of Galilee, there was no discussion of salary vacation time, or retirement plans. He did, however, present them with an amazing promise. If they followed him, he would make them fishers of men. So they were clearly being asked to make a radical commitment, and in turn, Jesus would radically transform their present occupation to one that held eternal spiritual consequences. He said, I will make you. The first part of Jesus promised, I will make you, made it clear that he alone, would empower the disciples to undertake this new vocation. A student could not major in the science of fishing for men. just wasn't there. And this was a, uh, any kind of local rabbinical school that wasn't, that wasn't going to happen. It was not a subject that could be taught in a traditional way. Rather, through their close association with the Lord and the leading of the Spirit, Jesus' followers would be enabled to effectively carry out his ministry. In a unique twist on their former occupation, the graduates of Jesus' degree program would no longer fish for fish, but they would fish for men. Again, in Matthew, a literary a translation 
It goes to say Jesus does not call his disciples to be his apprentices in the intellectual probing of the Torah or to rehearse venerable religious traditions. He called fishermen in the new kind of fishing that they are to fish for people. So in their former jobs, these men fished for a necessary staple of life, food. In the process, the fish lost their lives to provide sustenance to people. As fishers of men, however, they would now skillfully catch and rescue people who were facing eternal judgment for their sins. As Osborne, the writer of this, said, notes in his commentary on Matthew, fishing kills while Jesus' new fishing brings life. You see, this kind of fishing brings life to other people. And if you've never won anybody to the Lord, you'll never understand what I'm talking about. But when you see the first person that you've witnessed to get down on his or her knees and get the Holy Ghost, be baptized in Jesus' name, there's something that just goes inside of you. Your spirit gets stirred up. There's a joy there that cannot be mastered or given by anybody else. It's the most wonderful feeling in the world. Now, given the gravity of the decision they faced that day. The four fishermen did not flinch. It was a choice. They arrived at not in cold, calculating way, although they had certainly considered the cost, but from deep within their hearts. With passion, they eagerly left life as it had been in favor of pursuing the Messiah who now beckoned them. According to Matthew's account, Simon and Andrew wasted no time, for they straightway, the Bible says, left their nets and followed him. Likewise, James and John immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. The term straightway and immediately translated from the same Greek word, euthios, in both verses 20 and 22. And they emphasized the immediacy of the disciples' response. There was no hesitancy. There was no vacillating. They immediately or straightway left their nets. It was no question. They didn't look at the nets for just a second and say, Now, if I leave this, I'm never going to be able to come back to this. I, I may lose my position here. It was nothing like that. They straightway, there was something different here than they had ever encountered before. And that's, that's wonderful. They left fishing. They left family. They left friends. And this was a radical decision these men made that day. To forsake all reflected no small matter. Their lives would forever be altered. Uh, R.T. France in the Tyndale commentary on Matthew highlights the extreme detour they chose to embark upon it. It would bring a complete disruption of their normal way of life. Craig Cleaner says underscores the potentially shameful consequences one would face when relinquishing established social relationships and standing within that culture. In other words, when you went and abandoned something that you were, that's what you were, and that's where your standing was in the Middle East culture, it could bring dishonor on not only you, but on the whole community. You gave up. You were a fisherman. That's what you were supposed to be. That's what your daddy was. That's what your grandpa was. And you're going to dishonor the whole culture, the whole community by leaving this. Do you see what they left? and how this could impact them in the future, and not only them, but their family members and friends, because of what they did. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, taught that rearranging one's priorities and unencumbering oneself from any spiritually unhealthy relationships were absolutely essential in order to fully serve him. If any man come to me and hate not his father, 
mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Stated more succinctly, if a person has failed to leave behind all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple, Luke 14.33. Now, while this degree of dedication may seem unattainable, we, thank, thank, we thankfully can look to the inspiring role model of Jesus himself, who for the joy, the Bible says, that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. In Hebrews 12.2. And on top of that, Hebrews 12.1 talks about a cloud of witnesses who have faithfully preceded us. So we've got a cloud of witnesses that has already done everything that I'm talking to you about here this morning. They've already done it. A great cloud of witnesses. So for you to sit back there and say, this is unattainable. The problem with that is that there's already been people that have gone before us that have done it completely gave themselves over to it i uh i i still i know that you you hear this a lot especially if you've been in church any any length of time but uh I, I you know no matter how much i i hear it how much i think about it i always go back to some of the testimonies and some of the books that i've read in times past of some of the early pentecostal pioneers and what they went through but you know it made them so strong and God backed them up in every way because they they didn't they didn't care what other people thought. They didn't care uh, where they witnessed. They didn't care where they prayed. They didn't care. They just knew that they loved God. They had got something that was wonderful and they were going to do their best to tell as many people as possible about what they had. This is what the Holy Ghost is all about. This is a joy that is in us, this is a peace that is within us, this is a righteousness that is within us through what Jesus did, through the cross, through the resurrection. I have got this wonderful hope that is within me. I didn't get this hope through government. I got this hope through Jesus. I got this hope through Jesus. You know... The names, I've often wondered about this, you, you think about it. Not surprisingly, in Mark's account, the chief spokesman, Peter, headed the list, followed by his brother Andrew and the sons of Zebedee, James and John. And after enumerating seven more names, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him, concludes the list. And incidentally, some minor discrepancies, including a few of the names and their order, exist between the various lists of the twelve and the different gospel accounts. Now, given that people in the ancient world were sometimes known by more than one name, uh, it kind of helps us to understand this. However, these variations can easily be explained by instances where a particular individual was identified by more than one name. Thus, for example, Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Matthew 10:3 and Mark 3:18, is probably the same person as Judas, the brother of James, Luke 6:16 6, and Acts 1:13. So there was different names that these people were known by. There's no discrepancy uh, in as much as it's just they're, they're known by other names. The twelve were appointed with specific objectives in mind. The first objective was stated in Mark 3, and he ordained twelve that they should be with him. 
And as the New Bible Commentary, 21st Century Edition, remarks, it said, before they would be ready to preach the good news, they had to spend time with Jesus and learn the pattern their lives on His life. If we do not follow their examples, our preaching will be like loudspeakers blurring meaningless propaganda. That's all we have. If we don't spend time with Jesus and we do not learn what's important in the kingdom of God through Him, then all we are is sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. That is all we are. Maloney says this. He said, all disciples will succeed or fail insofar as they are or are not with Jesus. In short, the disciples had to first be with Him in order to proclaim Him. You can't proclaim that which you're not with. And that's the difference. You know, you hear, I, I, there are ministers, and we listen, and I've heard, uh, you know, you, you get people who send you uh, um, videos, if you would, of, of different preachers of different denominations, and they do good teachings. They do that. And I believe that these people have spent time with Jesus in as much as according to what they are teaching or preaching, they spent time. But does that mean they're saved? No, it does not mean they're saved because Matthew 7 tells us that they had done many wonderful works in His name. They had cast out devils, but He never knew them. God can speak through a donkey. God can speak if a person spends time in the presence of God for any length of time. There is a certain amount of anointing that the Word has. That does not mean their life is anointed. It does not mean they have the Holy Ghost. It just means that that Word that they're speaking is anointed because they have spent some time with Jesus. And that's essential for us to understand that. Just because a person has a good Word doesn't mean that's a good person. Boy, you're being judgmental. Yeah. I've got a right to be. The Bible tells me that I can listen to everybody do and prophesy and do all this, and I can sit by and judge. Just as long as I'm willing for someone to sit by and judge me. That's how it works. And to be honest with you, if something happens and some bad spirit gets a hold of me, I hope somebody is good enough to tell me when I'm not doing right. Well, you see how quiet that got? I mean, absolutely. You don't love me enough to say, now, Brother Robertson, you're afraid that I'd bark right back at you and say, what gives you right to say anything to me? I'm the anointed of God, blah, blah, blah. The anointed of God, blah, 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 sometimes can be unanointed. And if a person comes to someone with the right spirit and the right attitude, I don't think there's a thing wrong with it. It's according to the right spirit. That's good preaching. Thank you. Now, Moving on. They were with Jesus. They were to be ambassadors of Jesus. Uh, the twelve were to serve as the Lord's commissioned ambassadors, and he ordained twelve that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out devils. The selection of these men reflected the beginning of the solution to Jesus' statement of the dilemma expressed directly before. He commissioned the twelve, Matthew 10, that they were not sufficient evangelistic workers in proportion to the size of the harvest. And he said this to him. He said, Thus say, or, Then saith he and his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send labors into the harvest. The role of an ambassador included three chief elements. Number one, to preach as well as demonstrate authority. An ambassador has to be able to preach and demonstrate that he has the authority that he has been commissioned with. 
He has to demonstrate that. And number two, he was to heal. And number three, to cast out devils. These three functions are evident throughout the Gospels and Acts as the disciples carried out their ministry and they went out and preached that men should repent and they cast out many devils and anointed with oil, many that were sick and healed them. The proclaiming of the Lord's Word was confirmed through miraculous supporting signs in Mark 16.20. Jesus, however, warned at 70 not to misplace their joy in the newly discovered spiritual power, but to rejoice in their salvation. He said, don't you go out and talk about how great things are because you can cast out devils. Rejoice, rather, that your name is written in heaven. That's what you rejoice about. Luke 10, and the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said to them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents, scorpions, and over all the power, not part of the power. There's no devil that has a right to tell you anything, nor do you have to listen to anything that the devil tells you. When he tells you you're going to live in poverty, you call him a liar. When he tells you you can't serve God, you call him a liar. You let him know what he is because you have power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all, all, all the power of the enemy. (laughs) He said, nothing by any means shall hurt you. Nothing. Notwithstanding, though, after all that, In this rejoice not. He said, don't get happy about that. That's hard not to, isn't it? He said, don't rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. That's where you need to rejoice. That's where you need to rejoice. This cautionary statement should serve as a reminder that the supernatural workings of the Spirit are bestowed for the purposes of edification and the Lord's glorification, not for self-aggrandizement. That is the problem there. Because people begin to build a ministry out of cast, casting out devils, and that's the only ministry they got. Uh, they begin to build a, a miracle ministry, and it's all the ministry they got. You know, that, that's, that's great that you got a, a church full of people that come in, and, you know, I, I'm not against that. It's great that they come in, and all of them are healed, but every one of them is already saved. When you've got someone with that kind of ministry, and you've got people that are not saved... And they come down and God heals them and they receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That is the purpose in having a miracle ministry or a healing ministry. It's to reach the lost. Not just for us to follow people around. Oh, I've got to go over here because he's having a healing ministry. Well, I thought you got healed last week. Well, I've got a new ailment today. You know, you get into that, that following after personalities, you know. God. It's such a, it is such a human trait, I guess. I never worked well with me ever, even when I wasn't in church. I, I never could get into that. You know, you in the world back in my day in the seventies, you know, you had all these super oldie stars. They're oldies now. They weren't oldies in the seventies. My wife had all the all the Beatles. In fact, if she still had all those Beatles records she had, I'd probably be a rich man right now. You know, she had all those, and she liked the Beatles, and and uh, I never got into it. My dad, before he was in church, he liked all the old country stars: Charlie Rich, Charlie Pride, Kenny Nelson, not Kenny Nelson, Willie Nelson. <laughs> no, that was afterwards. Now that was, it was back in Charlie Rich, Richie. Yeah, he knows him. Uh, <laughs> all those, you know, and. and I, he was raised on that stuff, and I never could get it. I never could get it. 
I never could understand all, you know, I, I'd listen to stuff with my, <coughs> with my wife. Now, there was some stuff I did enjoy. I like Marty Robinson gunfighter ballads. I, you know, I still got to be careful with those. You know, <laughs> you know, I like that kind of stuff. But to really give yourself over to how people go crazy and spend millions of dollars or billions of dollars on that kind of thing to be able to see and to buy records, you know, it, didn't, it never did make sense to me. But then again, people have a tendency. If, if people could ever give that to God in the way that they have idol worship when it comes to singers, stars, if they could ever give that same acclamation to, to Jesus Christ, what could we do in the kingdom? What could we do? The problem is, is that, you know, Jesus is, you feel him and you know he's there, but he's not up here preaching to you. And if he was, maybe things would change, maybe they wouldn't. I don't know, because he would probably preach a whole lot harder than I do. And can you imagine what the Apostle Paul, if he was here today, that probably he would have a church of ten. Because he would tell it the way it is. They wouldn't like that. It's one thing to, to look and read the words, but he's not here preaching it. Oh, that's some good preaching too. Thank you. You know, Jesus continued to work through his spirit-empowered disciples long after he had ascended to heaven. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. His disciples would carry the good news of the gospel, not only to Judea and Samaria, but to the furthest reaches of the Roman Empire, unto the uttermost parts of the earth, in Acts 1.8. Uh, in Erdman's commentary on the Bible, he said, The final scene of the gospel of Matthew brings Jesus' life to a climax and initiates a new way of life for his disciples. And this new way of life was not intended solely... For the first century disciples, but is for us to follow today. And as we climb the mountain with Jesus in the 11, we're summoned to participate in the ongoing work of his kingdom. The climax and crown of Matthew's gospel is profoundly apt in that it invites the reader to enter the story. In Matthew, it invites us to enter it. While certainly a, a, it's a challenge, it's a challenging undertaking. Uh, we can trust that the Lord's providence, His providential uh, guidance, strength, and, and presence for all powers given unto me in heaven and in earth. So He invites us to enter into this same thing. And He said, Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. The Great Commission invites us to teach, to preach, and, and to take this kingdom out. All of us. It's not a matter of just the twelve. It's all of us. Jesus' message was quite simple. Go teach all nations, baptizing them. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. The word teach can also be translated to make disciples. The nations were to be taught to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Matthew twenty-eight twenty. In addition, they were to be baptized and experience it makes a sudden appearance at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, this is Erdman's commentary on the Bible I'm quoting from, and he says, as the initiation rite for the followers of Jesus. Now, this is what they said. The practice of baptism was not optional. Again, I'm talking about a commentary on Matthew. As Osborne rightly maintains, he said, Baptism in the Lord's, is the Lord's mandate for the church in the New Covenant community. Some Christian movements, he says, believes baptism is not for today. But the apostles have been, would have been aghast at any, or horrified, if you would, at any such suggestion. 
This is a commentator, not me, that said that. Do you see what he's saying? Even he understood the need for water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. And we know as apostolic believers that for us to be born again of the water and of the Spirit, which is a commandment that we have, that we must be baptized going down in the water in Jesus' name. And we must be baptized in the Spirit, speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. That is the necessity. And thankfully, the apostolic church today, like the first followers of Jesus, shares in this exciting commission to make and baptize disciples throughout the entire world. Acts 2.38, then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And he goes on to say, For the promises unto you and to your children, not just to the twelve, not just to a few, but to all those that shall follow from afar off, all of them. Questions, comments? Raise your hands. Questions or comments? Wonderful to have the truth. Isn't it? Let me just say this again. I just feel impressed. I don't care how hard it may be for you to really grasp this. I've learned a long time ago, and many people that have served God longer than I have that are here, can tell you the same thing. If you try by your own strength to make this work, you will always fail. But when you just walk in the flow of the Spirit, and when, and when, and when you have temptation come your way, find a place to pray through and pass that temptation. You're still going to fall. You're still going to have some problems as you go. But you can get through it. And you do not, like I taught on Wednesday, you do not have to be cursed by God because you, as long as you learn to repent, as long as you learn and continue to understand sin as sin, that's the problem. When people continue to fail, they begin to think, I can't overcome this, so I'm just not going to recognize it as sin anymore. When you quit repenting, then that's when you have a problem. I, I, you know, you, you, you say, well, how many, you know, I, I've repented of this same thing over and over and over again. Continue to repent till you get victory and continue to give it to God. Whenever you make the mistake, say, God, I can't do this on my own. You need to take this from me. You will overcome it. You will overcome it. That's a promise. Any other questions or comments? Go ahead. You continue to give it to God. Every time you do it, every time you make that mistake, if it, whatever it may be, well, this, we'll just use a thought, for instance, it's just for an example. You have thoughts cross your mind, things you know shouldn't be there. When they cross your mind, I'll keep this in mind, too, when it comes to thought processes, and you, I've taught this before. The Bible says that Satan is a prince in the power of the air, and where we get things is from the air. You know, radio waves, uh, tele, you know, all that comes to the Guess what you are? You're like an antenna. Satan throws something out there, and you just pick it up. You ever wonder where that thought came from? Boom. How did that get there? I wasn't thinking about that. That's where they come from. I mean, he loves to give you that. So what you do, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, I know I've failed in this area. I've done this, or I have I've thought this. I've failed. Forgive me for this. Ask God and be, you know, from your heart. Now, God, I'm giving this to you. I can't handle this on my own. I can't do this. I'm not overcoming this. And I don't care how long it takes you to do it. Never quit. 
because this is where this is where backsliding comes from because people think I can't overcome this. I can't overcome. Yes, you can through the power of the Holy Ghost. That's where the Bible says I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. It's not through you. It's through him. Yeah, yeah. And using a scripture is great because there's nothing more powerful than the Bible. And finding a scripture that would fit that, that's good. Casting down of strongholds, or uh, pulling out of strongholds, casting down of imaginations. And you know, imagination can be a wicked thing too. Extremely wicked. That's what you said you've got to cast down some imagination. Not all imagination's bad. I think there's a certain amount of imagination a person has to have to have faith. But it's just vain imaginations. It's what we have to be careful of. Any other questions or comments? All right, stand with me. It's already been said, come early to pray. And please do. We're going to come and have good church tonight. Uh, the uh, snow is not supposed to mount anything, so don't worry about that. And uh, let's, let's pray as, as we pray. I, 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 a few years ago, some of you may remember, we went through a period like this where it snowed on Fridays and Saturdays. And we need to pray and stop that cycle. That's, I, I, I believe that's demonic. I do. I believe that's demonic. And I remember, and again, I can't remember how many years ago it's been, but I remember that cycle, and we began to pray and seek God for this, and it stopped. If it's going to snow, and, you know, I, granted, it's good for the ground for it to snow. But let's have it done on... Uh, uh, Tuesday. No, we don't want to do that. Uh, let's have it done on Monday after you're at work. And they get it all cleaned up by the evening when you go home. How's that? All right. <laughs> all right. So let's pray together right now. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blessings, your goodness, your mercy unto us. Bless each and every one. And I pray, God, I curse, Lord, in Jesus' name, the cycle of snow that we're having. God, that it would no longer disrupt the kingdom of God no longer disrupt the people, Jesus, as they try to travel. I pray that you keep your hand upon them and bless them in every way. I ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Lord, bless you all.